Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. I'm Reza Aslan, and I wrote How to Avoid the White Savior Industrial Complex in the Atlantic. And it is the story of the week. Over the 13 truly enjoyable years that I've known Reza Aslan, I've noticed there's one huge difference between us. He cares about stuff. Unlike me, Reza is never afraid of a fight. This guy has argued with more people on television alone than I have in my entire life. So when Reza wrote that we need good white saviors, I was not interested in signing up. Being a savior of any color sounded like a lot of work. Like the travel alone sounds awful. I'm more of a talking to a microphone in my closet kind of guy. Worse, if I got it wrong, I'd wind up being a bad white savior. Being a bad white anything is not something I want a chance right now. But when I read his piece, I found that Reza was making a shocking argument. It made me think that I could pull off being a good white savior. Writing is hard. Who's got that kind of time when you're already busy trying to be Joe Stein? So he turns on a mic, maybe twiddles a knob, calls a journalist friend who's got an actual job. Auditory. Single story, just listen to smart people speak. Conversation filled with information is the story of the week. Reza Aslan's article, How to Avoid the White Savior Industrial Complex, is based on this historical event that he chronicles in his new book which is about this American missionary who was a hero in Iran when Reza was growing up there as a kid. That is, until the 1979 revolution, which is also when Reza and his family fled the country for America. Reza, your family left Iran when you were seven years old. What do you remember 
about it in general. Like, I don't know what I remember before I was seven. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a lot of, you know, images and flashes. And so, you know, there was this mad rush at the airport, people all desperate to get out. I remember when we were at the, um, the, the kind of the customs area where, you know, the, the agents would open up our suitcases and go through all of our things. And I remember very clearly that they pulled out a lot of our valuables and just kind of pocketed it. And I remember when my mother complained, right? They were taking like her, her tea set and, you know, family heirlooms, um, stealing it, essentially. The uh, customs official said, well, you're more than welcome to stay with them if you'd like. Wow. And so we left Iran with nothing, basically a suitcase each. Did you feel your parents' fear or were you too young to... I mean, it just felt scary, right? I remember very clearly that I was scared to death. I remember that my mother told me that I needed to not let go of my sister's hand. And I, re I remember very clearly, she didn't say this, but I felt that what was being communicated to me was, if you let go, you'll be left behind. And... You know, it was just it was uh, it was pretty, pretty awful, pretty traumatic. And had you already seen the movie Home Alone and you knew how bad this could be? <laughs> I think Home Alone. Well, that was like 90s, right? Was that? That's I true. Oh, yeah. I remember. Like, okay, yeah. It's hard to remember. That must be a traumatic movie for you, though. Yes. Yeah. I, I thought it was a documentary when I first saw it. <laughs> um, so your family moves to San Jose, California, where you wind up falling in with this evangelical church group there. That must have really pissed your dad off. Oh, yes, it absolutely did. Uh, I, I went to a, an evangelical youth camp and I became, you know, this kind of devout fundamentalist evangelical Christian. And, uh, you know, my first job is to convert your family. You don't want them to burn in hell. And my dad was so mad because, <laughs> I mean, his whole thing was, wait a minute, wait a minute. We fled Iran to avoid religion, and the first thing you do is become a fundamentalist Christian. He was incensed. It's like, I think I think he just felt the cruelty of the irony. Though my mother was quite open to the gospel message, and I, I actually converted her and my little sister both to to Christianity. I saved those two souls. I could not save my father's soul or my or my middle sister's soul. Did you actually go on any? missionary trips to convert people? Uh, I converted people just here in America. I didn't, yeah. I didn't need to, I didn't, I didn't need to go abroad in order to convert anyone. But yeah, that is the, the primary duty. You know, when you, when you accept this gospel message, job number one is to get other people to accept yeah. it. And I took yeah. that job very seriously. I spent a good, you know, six, seven years, uh, just, preaching this gospel to everyone, whether they wanted to hear it or not. So your book is about this missionary named Howard Baskerville, who tried to convert people to Christianity, just like you did. He goes off in 1907 to Persia. And well, how did you even first hear about this story? It's just kind of, you know, it's one of those stories that you've always yeah. known. Like I always joke, it's, it's sort of like, you know, George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. And he was a big deal in Iran. There was like schools named after him and streets named after him. Yeah, big deal. Yeah, he's entombed in Tabriz, the city in which he lived and the city in which he died. There's a big golden bust of him 
in a, a museum dedicated to the to the Constitution in which he fought. Um, yeah, schools, when, when, streets. When you come to America, you figure he's going to be a big deal here too. Yeah, no one in America had ever heard of this kid. So he graduates from Princeton and he decides to become a missionary. But like everyone else who goes to some Ivy League school, the last thing you want to do is go <laughs> yes. home and work at the family business. go back to South Dakota, oh, exactly. Yeah. So he basically, um, he wants to see the world. He wants to kind of have a grand experience. But, you know, it's 1907 and he's a right. kind of lower middle class white kid. There, there's no traveling the world. The way that you do that is you become a missionary. That's how you see the world. And so he applies for this short-term mission job, a three-year position. And he desperately wants to go to China and Japan. But it turns out Jesus did not want him in China. Or maybe he did. Didn't matter because the church wanted him in Persia. So they sent him to Persia in the fall of 1907. Persia, which is what the empire that Iran had was called, was in this really bad place in 1907. One year earlier, as part of the democratic wave that swept the world, the Shah had signed a constitution and created a parliament. But 40 days later, he had a heart attack and died. And then his son took over. This guy, and you should look him up, chose to wear the tallest crown I have ever seen in my life. And he was not into sharing power. So he immediately tore up that constitution and shelled parliament while the legislators were inside. What is, is it just if you grew up with an authoritarian dad who's the king, you're just going to be a dick or what's the deal? Well, in this case, uh, the son, whose name was Muhammad Ali, and now you'll never forget that name. Thank you. Uh, Muhammad Ali Shah, um, you know, he was raised to believe that the country was his by birthright. Like he honestly and truly believed that God had given him Persia to control. All these and, kings did. That's like yeah. uh, any Russian czar. Pretty standard, all, yeah, pretty yeah. standard line. Yeah. And he was incensed with his father for having given in to this two-year revolution that had begun in 1905 to, to create a constitution and a parliament, to, to transform Iran from an autocracy to a constitutional monarchy. And he takes over in January of 1907 and almost immediately with the backing of his Russian allies – uh, begins to declare a war against the constitutionalists. And this is a war that the Shah very easily wins because he's got a Russian-trained, Russian-armed, Russian-funded, and Russian-commanded uh, military. Which... This is back when the Russians had a real military. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and the Shah, with that support, takes back almost the entirety of the country of Iran, except this one city in the northwest of the country called Tabriz. And this is the city that Howard Baskerville suddenly arrives in. So there's all these revolutionaries in this one city at that point. Who's in charge? The revolutionaries come under the command of this mythical character named Sattar Khan, who sort of like the George Washington of the of the revolutionary army, except that Washington was, you know, a rich landowning slave owner. And uh, Sattar Khan was like an illiterate horse thief and peasant. But he had this sort of natural leadership ability and he sort of creates this unity amongst all of these different groups and trains them and, and creates a, a fearsome fighting force. What's happening in Tabriz becomes a kind of international cause celebre. And so all these other revolutionaries 
around the world start to come to Tabriz to join the fight, all fighting in what was at that time uh, widely seen as the most important anti-imperialist revolution in the world. But if Baskerville's like a missionary who's a high school teacher, how does he become friends with a guy, Sadr Khan, who's you know, a revolutionary and a a warrior. Like, it doesn't seem like a a natural friendship. Well, partly it has to do with the fact that everybody else is so much older than he is. So there are five American missionaries at this school where he teaches. And he's the only one of them who's not married with children. You know, he's 22 years old. Yes. And there's nobody to hang out with. And so he just kind of starts hanging out with Persians who are his age. And Persians who are his age are engaged in a revolution for freedom and democracy. This is kind of how you became an evangelical. Exactly. You're just looking for people your age to hang out with. And so he starts starts going to these, you know, like late night coffee shop meetings and he's listening to these debates about, you know, what kind of country they want to build, you know, that the Shah is engaged in. Are they the equivalent of like clove smoking kind of cafe intellectuals or are these just like badass revolutionaries with like uh you know guns strapped to them they're clove smoking intellectuals with rifles slung on their shoulders oh this yeah. is so in other words there's got to be a picture of these people in some college kids dorm wall as yeah. a matter of fact because they understood like the propaganda value of this they took thousands of photographs of themselves they actually created postcards and they would send the postcards to the other provinces, you know, of these armed, beautiful uh, fighters, men and women. Like the pictures of the women were scandalous. The the women. So women with guns looking cool with like uh, a cigarette dangling from them or something. In fact, the women would cut their hair and wear uh, the same uniforms as the men. Um, And they would go out and fight. And these pictures caused quite a scandal in Europe, actually, when they started being published in Europe. They were like, oh, my God, there's like women fighting in these wars. How barbaric. So I expect Baskerville is going to help the people who are suffering and serve them and help them find food. But instead, he does something that I just don't see from a Princeton guy, <laughs> which is he like goes to the encyclopedia and looks up how to make a bomb. <laughs> Right. Which I didn't know was in the encyclopedia, first of all. <laughs> you know, I'm you know, curious about this, whether it's still in there. Yeah, the Encyclopedia Britannica, apparently you know, lots of instructions about bomb making and like military training and things like that. Okay, so the State Department finds out that Baskerville has looked up how to make a bomb in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And uh, and they're afraid he'll cause an incident. So they, they order him home, I assume, right? Well, first, you know, they read him the Riot Act. Sure. You cannot have anything to do with what's happening in this revolution. You cannot engage in it in any way. We will arrest you. We will, you know, detain you if you don't stop these activities. And so he does and, for a little while. Oh, he does. And then why is he is he like taking marksmanship classes? Like how is he learning how to like fight? But here's the thing, Joel. The the Revolutionary Army had enough people who knew how to shoot guns. That's not what they needed Baskerville for. What they needed Baskerville for was the propaganda boom. This Revolutionary Army had had been begging the United States for support for years. They couldn't understand America's position. They were like, I, we don't get it. 
the, the only thing that we really know about American history is that you fought a revolution against a murderous tyrant. And we are fighting a revolution against a murderous tyrant. How could you not be on our side? And so just having an American there is one propaganda. American, just one American was so valuable. Um, just that his presence. Satar Khan, yeah. you know, this sort of revolutionary commander, makes him second in command. Makes oh, Baskerville. That sounds like a bad call. Okay, like, so. You know. 20, at the time, 23-year-old Christian missionary, second in command. So Baskerville has this choice now. He can he can go home, right, as he's been ordered to do, or he can stay and uh, be second in command. So he says, okay, fine. He, he won't do it anymore. He promises. Uh, and he kind of goes back to his teaching. But then, you know, after months of trying to defeat Tabriz and failing, the Shah decides to change tactics and just starve the city to death. So he besieges the city, cuts off all food and water. And what follows is this horrific humanitarian disaster in which tens of thousands of men, women and children are dying on the streets of starvation. And that's it for Baskerville. Like something snaps in him and he... Quits his teaching job, he quits his missionary post, and he fully joins this revolution. And so the American consul general, the same guy who, you know, read him the riot act when he found out what he was doing, uh, goes up to him and, and says in no uncertain terms, you can't do this. And Baskerville very famously responds, the only difference between me and these people is the place of my birth. And that is not a very big difference. And he pulls out his passport and he hands it over and he strips himself of his American citizenship. That sounds symbolic, but in reality, it actually put him in danger, right? Nobody was foolish enough to hurt an American even then. So at that moment in which he hands it over, right, it's not just a symbolic act. He is giving up that privileged position that he had, that safety net that he enjoyed, and now he is, as he himself rightly says, just another one of these revolutionaries. So then the fight, he's really in the fight now. now. he's in the fight. And, uh, and as predicted by me, he's not so good <laughs> he's at it. He's not that good at it. By the way, no. I should mention, he, he, when he quit his teaching position, he stood before his students and said, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't just keep teaching you anymore while you know there's this suffering on the streets. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go join the revolution. And his students got up and joined him. So wow. he has his I, own- There's not one teacher I ever had who I would follow at the battle. <laughs> no, really? No one? You're a professor. Would your kids mm. follow you? I can think of maybe two of them who, who might come That's with pretty me. That's pretty good. Yeah, two. That's not bad at all. Um, You know, he forms this kind of squad within the larger revolutionary army in which he is in command of all these high school kids. But again, there's really no saving the city. You know, by by the time we get to around April of 1909, when he's now 24 years old, um, the siege has done its job. I mean, the city is out of food. People are dying by the hundreds every day. There's really nothing left to do except to die waiting for the siege to end or die breaking the siege. And so on the morning of April 20th, 1909, he and his students volunteer for this, I mean, suicidal mission, really. It is a suicidal mission to try to break through the siege and get 
food and assistance to the city. It doesn't last long. Baskerville gets shot in the heart. Um, he survives for about 10 minutes and then he dies. The revolution succeeds, though. Yes. News starts to spread about now an American has died, right? It was one thing when, like, you know, Russians and Georgians and Persians oh, and Armenians were right. being killed, but an American just died. And so the Russians convince the Shah to declare a temporary ceasefire so that they can bring food and medical assistance to the starving inhabitants of the city. And the Shah reluctantly agrees. And it's that agreement that leads to his downfall because the revolutionaries use the lull in fighting to break through and march on Tehran and throw him from his throne, send him into exile. And they reestablish. And Iran is a uh, liberal democracy to this day. <laughs> and then it's a great, that's it. End of story. I, I haven't kept up <laughs> since then. Yeah. Well, so it does become, you know, they reestablish the constitution, they rebuild the parliament, and for a brief while, Iran is a constitutional monarchy. And Baskerville is a martyr hero until, of course, the 1979 revolution, when they probably don't want to celebrate Americans anymore. Yeah. After that revolution and after the Islamic uh, Republic takeover, pretty much all memory of Baskerville gets wiped. All those streets are renamed. All the schools are renamed. Someone told me uh, not that long ago that there's a chain of very popular coffee shops in Tehran that are still called Baskerville. Um, oh. But I'm certain that nobody sitting in those coffee shops has any idea who Howard Baskerville actually is. It's like asking people who drink at Starbucks to tell them about the, the myth uh, of Starbucks. Moby Dick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. When we come back, we'll find out why Reza thinks we need more white people meddling in other countries' affairs, like Howard Baskerville did. But first, a word from our white sponsors. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury, with a reveal unlike any other, as Infinity presents. A new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients. Each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. 
Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA member, FDIC, copyright 2024. JPMorgan, Chase & Co. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for 40% off site-wide at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Reza wrote a book about Howard Baskerville that's partly a call to arms for Americans. Maybe literally. Okay, so you write this article in The Atlantic uh, in defense of white saviors, <laughs> which is a, really a response to an article 10 years ago that Teju Cole wrote about the white savior industrial complex. And you make an argument through Howard Baskerville that more white people should go to uh, countries full of non-white people and teach them a thing or two. <laughs> that's a... That's a- I That's don't know about wrote. that. That's, That's a, a pretty oversimplification. <laughs> no, look, what, I, what I'm saying is the world needs white people of privilege to use their resources to help as much as possible. And there's a... This is every college application I read <laughs> exactly. when I help kids. And there's a way... My argument is that there is a way to do this while avoiding the white savior trap. And that, ironically that Baskerville actually provides a pretty good, you know, model of how to do it, right? I mean, here's a kid who went there literally as a white savior, but who very quickly understood that he needed to to give the agency to the people that he had come to serve, right? He asked them, what do you need from me? And they said, we don't need another preacher. We don't need another teacher. We need someone to join this cause so that the world will take us seriously, that's what we need from you. And he did. He had this sort of the safety of his privilege and he was willing to give that up and to truly serve in the way that the people he had come to serve needed him. So how do you maybe differently or maybe the same as Teju Cole define what a white savior is? A white savior is a person of privilege who seeks out minor acts of charity while ignoring the underlying causes that have led to the situation that he or she is trying to address and who does so without giving any agency to those people and fundamentally with this goal of having some big emotional experience that just ends up 
yeah. validating their privilege to begin with. That, I think, is sort of what a white savior is. So that's like the uh, the two-week trip to Costa Rica. Yeah, yeah the two-week trip to Costa Rica to build, you know, a well that no one asked for to begin with. That's That's what the white savior is. You make a compelling argument through Baskerville that there are good white saviors. Do you have to die to be a good white savior? Like, I, who are other examples that you think of who are good white saviors? Uh, you're, you're putting me on the spot here. I, I, I don't know if I can. Exactly. There aren't any. Look, my wife, I think, you know, my oh, wife right. is, a, is a good white savior. She really so is. My yeah. wife is a fairly privileged white woman from the Midwest, quit her job, quit everything, moved to East Africa. Um, and lived amongst, you know, uh, the, the people there in Uganda, in Kenya, discovered that, you know, what they really needed was an, an easier and a fairer way to get the capital necessary in order to thrive in their own businesses and in their own, you know, entrepreneurial um, uh, goals. And so created this the first peer-to-peer micro-lending program called Kiva. And this is a big part of what attracted you to her, right? Oh, yeah. Like, Are you kidding oh, me? I mean, that's it, hot. Tell me right. that's not hot. What a specific fetish you have. <laughs> white <laughs> saviors. <laughs> yeah. This weird white savior <laughs> fetish I'm just starting to realize. That and feet. I'm There's no Pornhub channel for <laughs> yes, that at all. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Although, are we sure about that? No, we are not sure about anything on the internet. Um, okay, so... You're on this book tour for your new book, An American Martyr in Persia, and the tour has been challenging, right? It has been challenging, yeah. I'm really sorry. What's been going on? Well, look, uh, you know, what's happening in Iran right now is is in many ways unprecedented. Um, I've called it a fourth revolution. Um, there have been three revolutions in Iran's past, the 1906 one that we've talked about, 1953 and 1979. And I think what's happening now has the potential of being that fourth revolution. And it has unleashed a lot of passions in a lot of people. And as one of the most sort of, you know, public, uh, progressive Iranian-American voice, a lot of that shit has come towards me. And Wait, specifically, like what's happened? I've had just kind of general threats of violence and disruption. Um, that have canceled a number of my events. And then I myself had to cancel two events um, because of threats to the participants, um, you know, anybody who would show up with me. So what are people accusing you of? Of being a, a like a paid uh, lobbyist of the Islamic Republic, which besides being absurd is also profoundly illegal, by the way, <laughs> like hugely illegal. Wait, so the idea is that you're in bed with the that's Ayatollah? Right. That's what's right. the I'm in bed I, with the Ayatollah. Oh, yes. really? That's right. Is there a Baskerville right now in Iran? No. Like an American who's over there? No. no. Why? Because uh, that person would be thrown into a prison cell. Uh, it, well, so is Baskerville's yeah, killed, right? right? Um, look, we don't need, this is the thing, this is what's important. We don't need the Baskervilles of today to pick up a gun and go fight alongside the revolutionaries in Iran. We, that's not what we need because we have a much more powerful tool. Um, and as, as you know, you're going to laugh at this, but that tool is social media. That tool is our voice. You told me this. I, this is shocking. But then I've heard all of these Iranian revolutionaries 
they're all saying that the main thing Americans should be doing is going on Instagram and and amplifying voices of protesters. Which is the exact opposite. Exactly. It's the exact opposite of what we all in the privileged world think. Like, ah, you slacktivist. You really, you really think you're doing something? <laughs> we in the privileged world can laugh at slacktivism. But if you have no voice, if you live in a country in which the tyrant can shut down you know, turn off the lights and kill everybody at any time, then your survival depends on slacktivism. Your survival depends on that tweet. A tyrant stays in power by isolating his people from the rest of the world. Right now, that tyrant is telling the Iranian people, go home, get off the streets. Nothing is going to change. You can yell as much as you want to. Nobody hears you. Nobody cares. And... What we are saying is, we hear you. That's a far more powerful than a than a twenty two year old missionary with a gun. I did that on Twitter too. I I pretty much am the new Baskerville. I think that's it. There you go. Yeah, it's a heavy burden, but uh, <laughs> but you wear it well. Thank you. I I, I wanted to say that, but I didn't want to brag. <laughs> Reza Aslan wrote the new book, "An American Martyr in Persia: The Epic Life and Tragic Death of Howard Baskerville." Thank you so much for joining us, Reza. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Upon Reza's suggestion, I found two women who were protesting in Iran and asked them to write essays that I'd then post in my weekly column on Medium. Honestly, they were both a little light on jokes, but their pieces were much more compelling than mine are. I don't know if doing that helped. I don't know if it made me part of the white savior industrial complex, or if maybe bragging about it now on this podcast does. I just know that doing it was really, really easy. I didn't even suffer through any angry comments afterwards, which also made it different than my usual columns. The one thing I am sure of, though, it's that it's made me a little bit hotter to Reza Aslan. At the end of the show, what's next for Joel Stein? Maybe he'll take a nap or poke around online. Our show today was produced by Kate McAuliffe and Nisha Venkut. It was edited by Robert Smith. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wang. And our executive producer is Catherine Girardot. And our theme song was written and performed by Jonathan Colton. And a special thanks to my voice coach, Vicki Merrick, and my consulting producer, Lauren Zelaznik. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Joel Stein, and this is Story of the Week. And what does Howard Baskerville look like? Timothy Chalamet. Wow. Now that's just, you're just trying to sell this as a movie. I that mean, was pathetic. yes. That was crass. Yes, I am. If you're listening, Timothy. <laughs> Coming up on Story of the Week. The problem with being a dark web drug lord is that you can't brag about it to anyone in your real life. And I think that that creates this kind of like loneliness or like this anyway, this sort of like psychological problem that you are incredibly good at what you do and you can't tell anybody. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 
Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at AvalonWaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. Did you catch season three of This Is Digital? Season three of This Is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including digital lessons from the EV revolution and the chief digital officer's role in disruption and culture, featuring guests like Ekta Chopra of Elf Beauty and Tyson Jomini of JD Power. Do you have a digital mindset? Find out by checking out the latest and greatest on season three of This Is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com.